0: I watched a parent remove a cell phone from their 14 year old. This child, along with many others, um, flew into a, a, a rage. It was something mm-hmm. basically equivalent to maybe taking someone's substances mm-hmm. away. Immediately,
1: There are many cases of kids who become violent toward yep. themselves or their parents. It's really important that parents have a plan. Mm. If they're going to take devices away, they need to have a plan in place. But they'll come out on the other side of it um, if parents don't give in to the pressure that their kids are going to exert on them.
0: Welcome to Med Circles. it's all on your head podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Kolbeth, and it's great to be with you. After experiencing my own mental health struggles over the years, I really know the power in listening to other people's lived experience with similar challenges. So today we are going to be learning about what digital addiction is like and what it's like to treat those people who are struggling with this. I am so excited to introduce Dr. Hillary Cash, co-founder and chief clinical officer of Restart Life. Restart Life is the very first residential program in the US designed explicitly for adults and adolescents who are experiencing addiction to the internet and video games in addition to other mental health issues. Dr. Cash has co-authored books and many peer reviewed journals on this subject and is one of the nation's leading experts in the growing field of internet and gaming disorder. She is an inspiration to so many, and we are so very excited she took time out of her busy schedule to chat with us. Dr. Cash, welcome to What's All in Your Head. Much a pleasure to have you here. This topic is not only personal and interesting to myself, but I know we have a whole audience of people on MedCircle who are interested to learn more about a digital addiction, and we're pleased to have you here today. Thank you.
1: Happy to be here. Awesome.
0: So lots of different addictions in the world. I'm wondering, how did you come about to focus specifically on internet uh, addiction? I know that it began early in the 90s and wondering if living in the Pacific Northwest around a lot of dot-com companies, if you think that maybe contributed to some of the cases that you were seeing earlier, but what was your personal motivation for wanting to, to dive into this and, and address this type of addiction?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting and good question. I, I would say that um, it's probably because I had a young son at that time, and I really wanted to understand what was going on that was, you know, this internet thing that I, I didn't even have a computer at the time. I, I knew more from... Uh, NPR discussions of the internet. That's sort of my source of information about it. So I was really very ignorant, but concerned. And um, so I just made it my business to understand what was going on so that I could uh, manage as a parent. Um, I didn't want my son to end up in somebody's therapy office because of it. No, I understood.
0: And some of the statistics that I read are, are definitely disturbing. And a lot of that has to do with teenagers 18 and below when they're most mm-hmm. susceptible uh, open to being influenced. And a lot of these kids between 10 and 18 actually don't remember. They don't even know a life without the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. or born in 1980, I remember analog life. Mm-hmm. I remember life before the internet. But Mm -hmm. I have to believe that there's a whole generation that does not know what light is like without the internet. And I'm wondering if different treatments might involve almost going back to the future in the sense where cultivating inhuman relationships Mm -hmm. seems to be a bit of a challenge when Mm -hmm. you are online up to 11 hours a day. For some children, 10 to 18, a Pew Research study had recently um, released. And I'm wondering, do we need to get back to the future of, of one-on-one relationships? How do we have successful relationships with, with other human beings outside of, you know, sort of digital personas?
1: Yeah. I'm, you know, we have a residential treatment facility. And so the people who come there are people who are, have been living their lives. They're young. They've been living their lives in front of a screen. And um, their social lives have been carried on long before COVID. I mean, of course, COVID forced this on many more people. But long before COVID, they were online. And what we've found is that their social skills have tended to be very poor. And their social anxiety levels very high. So our approach is to absolutely get them away from screens for three full months. And during that time, we're really focused on helping them develop their skills in many, many different areas, but their social and communication skills are among those. And what they discover is that it is pretty wonderful to have to be, you know, interacting face to face with peers yes. and and people of all ages because our staff cover all ages and right. and uh, and and they are discovering that it's rather nice. But it takes them a while to get there because of their social high levels of social anxiety. Mm-hmm. They're really just not used to it.
0: Yeah, I I can only imagine. And I'm wondering if within the residential programs and different treatment that you offer are do you see more teens or more adults entering the program, or maybe equal amount?
1: Well, we have we treat more adults, and it was the adult program that we opened in in two thousand nine. Okay. So we see more adults overall, but yeah, there's a need for the adolescents as well, and we opened the adolescent program because we were getting so many calls. So yeah, probably equal amounts. I think the research is suggesting. Uh, I, I read contradictory findings in the research. Uh, this is a new field, and it's not uh, you know not everything is clear. Um, but I think that it's actually the young adult population that is more affected okay. in terms okay. of their numbers. Um, I I have read in some countries in in some uh, research the numbers are extremely high for addiction, not just video games, but to social media and, and other platforms online. Yep. So I, I think the numbers are really high. I think the reason for adolescents that it's not so high is that there's more parental control being exercised for more of these kids. And, and um, you know, and so they're not exhibiting the same level in the same numbers.
0: Yep. That makes sense. And As far as parental controls go, I have a lot of friends with children under the age of 10. And I'm wondering for parents, and we have a lot of those in our audience, if there's any sort of basic, maybe therapeutic methods or way to put healthy guardrails on that and whether it's not buying them technology until a Mm -hmm. certain age or being Mm -hmm. able to monitor X amount of times and different destinations they go, are parents able to um, exert those type of controls for their children?
1: I think if parents start when children are young, it's much, 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 much easier. Uh, if parents start to exert control with, with their teenagers, they're going to get much more uh, fierce pushback and teenagers by the time they're teenagers they will have learned workarounds and and just build that into their pushback and so it's it's like whack-a-mole trying to stop a determined teenager from going online and doing the stuff that you as a parent don't want them to do so so But don't give up just because you're starting when they're teenagers. uh, I think one of the best uh, things parents can do is impose on the whole household a digital fast for a a month. Certainly for the teenager, a a digital fast. You have to work with the schools to be able to do that or do it over the summer. But... And, and you have to expect a very bad reaction in the beginning when they're furious and they're going through withdrawal and all of that. So you have to, you want to prepare for it. Definitely. Hopefully work with a coach or a counselor who can, you know, help you think through as a parent how you're going to respond to your child's potentially violent reaction. Um, but if parents can start when the kids are young, And really just be teaching them, educating them about the value of all things interesting in life and and their relationship with their kids and the kids' relationship with one another and with friends. Um, And and just always keep the, uh, you know, internet activities that are not just strictly school related, keep those pretty minimized and, yep. and, and and make sure the child has an enriched social life, physical life, uh, out in the world life, family life, then, you know, the child will be fine and will learn how to have a, probably uh, learn how to have a perfectly healthy relationship with their screens. But it is really important for parents to understand that young children really should not be exposed to screens. Interactive screens, in particular, are very mesmerizing and are can be very damaging. Yes. Um, and smartphones, uh, I think parents—if parents really want their kids to have a cell phone—get them a dumb phone. Get them something without internet access yeah. until they are older, at least mid teenagers, you know, 14, 15, 16, and have demonstrated that they can lead healthy, responsible, well-rounded lives before they hand them this incredibly powerful tool with internet access that parent, it can be very hard for parents to control. Yes.
0: Seems like poor parents, it's hard for them to control a lot. So these tips are are priceless really for people looking for more answers to things that, you know, are newer, maybe a newer age problem. I'm wondering if there are any platforms or if you've seen in your experience, are there any specific platforms that might have a higher rate of addiction? So for instance, we've got Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We have all of these different digital platforms who, um, from my experience in digital media, I know that they will employ psychologists. It's very intentional, whether it's the sound the notification makes, whether it's the way that the user interface is designed and where they place the icons. And it can be a real insidious way to really sort of encourage that addiction. And so I'm wondering if there are any particular platforms maybe parents or adolescents might should be able to be aware of. Um, or if it's sort of, you know, any time on any one of these is too much.
1: I think I think too much time on any one of those is too much. And um because all of the popular sites have have been, as you have just said, very carefully designed. Um, essentially you know it's the attention economy keep keep hold people's attention so that you can bombard them with advertisements and hopefully get them you know to purchase the things you want them to purchase so holding their attention is the name of the game and all of those are carefully designed to do that and um as you say, they employ psychologists to help them figure out what the reward ratios should be um, to maximize that that attention.
0: Yeah, there there is no one you really need to focus on. I think it's definitely the yeah. whole buffet, if you yeah. will, of different I, I, sites, please. different platforms. Um, having someone myself with quite an addictive personality, I'm wondering. If I have to assume abstinence with a lot of different substance abuse, drug abuse problems, a lot of their treatment will will certainly preach complete and total abstinence because we don't need drugs (laughs) or alcohol to actually function on a day-to-day basis. And I'm wondering with how inundated we are now and how connected, if there isn't able to have any abstinence Um, from that for different reasons, what would be uh, a great way to go about working with someone Mm and sort of giving them the info and guidelines, whether it's X amount of hours, whether it's certain content, you know, I'm wondering how you can strike, because I imagine it must be exceedingly hard if you're struggling with an internet addiction, knowing it's insidious enough where you can't cut it off entirely, but you definitely want to have a healthier balance with it.
1: I think, although it's not easy to do, but I think that the way to go is to give uh, someone a period of abstinence so that their brains can return to normal functioning, uh, you know, because it is the nature of addiction that our brains downregulate uh, the reward systems, and and that's what keeps leading to, to the addictive cycle, So if as a parent, you can do this with your kid or as an adult, you can do this with yourself. If you can take a month to be completely abstinent from screens, it's going to be enormously beneficial. And then if you can, uh, for instance, have a day a week that is screen free, a, um, a weekend a month that is screen free, a week or two a year that is screen-free, you're really going to be setting yourself up to more likely be able to manage, um, you know, your screen use. But I do think that it's, and we do this with our clients at Restart, is we have them, as they're approaching, uh, let's say, the Mm, they've been there for six, seven weeks and they've still got some more weeks left in the intensive part of the program. We ask them to start thinking about really deeply how are they going to manage their tech use because they are going to go back. You know, we live in a high tech society, they're going to have to use it. So how are they going to use it? What are the things that they are going to give themselves permission to do online and what are the things that they're really going to just at least for now commit to be abstinent from so you can be abstinent from porn you can be abstinent from video games you can be abstinent from social media True. you can use computers as uh as something which uh you use for work for That's your schooling um you do video conferencing for um you know stay connected with your family and friends but really you can do without all the rest right and 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 fill all the time that you were giving to online activities you know it's hard at first but you know to fill that time and to know what to do with it but that's becomes the challenge is learning how to fill your time meaningfully yeah um Without it being screen time, definitely.
0: And I'm wondering for parents or or teens who are sort of wondering, am I on the verge of a digital addiction? Maybe thoughts in their head of I might be using this a little too much, but I haven't, fortunately, fallen. You know, all the way down to where these symptoms might be totally debilitating. So for those who might want to be super conscious, are there any, aside from just limiting the screen time that you're having on these different sites, is there anything um, sort of different methods, maybe therapeutic things that we could employ in home before it gets to a point where we really do need to seek professional help because the addiction's gotten so bad?
1: Uh, For parents, they need to model uh, healthy screen use. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that can work if you've got enough self dis- discipline left to do it is to set up a kind of a um, a regimen for yeah. when you're going to turn on your phone and check yeah. for texts or emails or check the sites that you've given yourself permission to check. And then Turn it off again so that you're not getting notifications. Don't get notifications. Turn all that stuff off. Just go check once an hour, once every few hours, check, and then turn it off again. That is really, a, can be a very effective way to manage it. And um, you can install, there are there's software that you can install in all devices that will keep track of the amount of time you're spending. And uh, also keep track of where you're going. And so if you keep track of that and you go back and you check it at the end of the day mm. you might be really surprised at how much time because it, we do get a lot of time distortion in our use of screens. we yes. you know we get we lose track we're in the flow and we lose track. Yep. So having the ability to have something just objectively tracking it for us and that we can look at, is helpful for some people. But listen, once it is the very nature of addiction, that once the addiction really takes hold, you've lost control. So you can have this as a good idea, but you can't implement it.
0: That makes a lot of sense, especially just being inundated. Um, Having worked in digital media almost 20 years, there is an inundation I was unable to avoid Mm -hmm. by the nature of my job. Upon leaving that industry, I personally started to do things that I think absolutely helped my concentration and focus. And I know for me, that is blocks of time when I certainly have a task or a deadline or something to complete. I'll just throw my phone in a drawer and turn off the ringer. Good. And I have found that actually does Really help. I wasn't, I'm always skeptical at first. But what I found was slowly, (laughs) slowly my attention span was getting a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And I'm wondering if that's something that's maybe a good sort of start that's not too daunting for people, sort of a baby step toward getting that
1: back. And you know, there's a lot of research that shows that multitasking is actually a really bad idea. we 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 delude ourselves thinking that multitasking is is just us being fabulously efficient with our time but it turns out that all the tasks we're trying to do when we're multitasking are actually we're doing them less well less efficiently um, because our focus is being chopped up all the time so unitasking and mm-hmm. and and, and Just staying focused on one thing and having all the distractions, setting the distractions of screens aside while we do that. Or if the task is something that we have to do online, like you're a student and you have to write a paper, just do that, you know, instead of um, interspersing it with social media and video games and whatever.
0: We've got the social media, we've got the video games, and now around the horizon is the metaverse, it's mm-hmm. augmented reality. It, it seems to me to be a step beyond. I'm looking at my screen, I'm involved with one of my social media platforms. I'm checking, checking it, checking it. And now we have this new product or, or new way of becoming, I'm sure, digitally addicted, which is augmented reality. And I will watch people put on the goggles, and they're off to the races. Mm -hmm. They are within this metaverse. They don't particularly want to leave because they can kind of create their own avatar. So it's almost like a more comfortable version for them of reality. And I'm wondering if you're starting to see at this point, because it's a bit in its infancy, uh, has Restart in the programs come in contact with people who seem to be addicted to, to literally an alternative reality?
1: Yes. And this is recent. We ha- Up until recently, we've not had it. But now we are starting to get clients who have been uh, gotten addicted to uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. And it's very disturbing because uh, if this is started when somebody is young and, mm-hmm. and in these cases, they were very young when they started, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old. Humans are still sorting out reality throughout childhood. Humans are sorting out reality. This is very this is a distortion. Uh, I mean, this is a removal from reality. It's giving an alternate universe that our brains cannot possibly really understand when we're immature. So uh, there was I was at a conference five years ago with somebody from Stanford who'd been very involved in the development of VR and and he said at the conference this stuff is too powerful mm-hmm. to ever use for anything but therapeutic uses it should mm-hmm. never be popularized but of course it is it yeah. has become popularized yeah. and i and and the reality distortion that i have seen as a result of it is very very worrisome so i if you're going to use virtual reality like, if you're a parent, don't let your kid ha- have a virtual reality headset. They have to be grown up and out of your house and on their own and no longer dependent on you. <laughs> yes. Yes. They can go get it on their own after college. Yes, yes. <laughs> As far right. as I'm concerned, let them be grown ups before yes. they try virtual reality.
0: yes, let let that brain chemistry kind of kind of level out and when you're older, yeah. you probably have more discipline and insight naturally just by yeah,
1: you by. understand pretty much how reality works, although right depending how many video games you played, you may that may be still pretty distorted. Yes,
0: definitely. I've watched a few very disturbing documentaries, and this is what actually first became my, my interest or borderline obsession into learning more about digital addiction. Um, having s- struggled with substance abuse issues in my life, I'm hyper aware of, of what the withdrawal symptoms or, or different behaviors you're exhibiting. When you, you don't want help, you have it taken away from you. A parent, I watched a parent remove a cell phone from their 14-year-old. It wasn't just, Mom, I want that back, I want that back, I want that back. This child, along with many others, um, flew into a a, a rage. It was something basically equivalent to maybe taking someone's substances away immediately. And that combination of anxiety sort of... um, Anger, etc what for a parent especially, if they were to do that, if they were at home, they weren't in any programs yet and they were to snatch the child's phone away, what can they look toward is symptoms much like drug or alcohol abuse where you know you're looking at them, you're watching their behavior when you take it away and and it's so intense you're a little bit horrified. I'm wondering how, maybe a parent and what they can keep an eye on um, if they were to remove devices as your suggestion to really just sort of cleanse it first to learn healthy behavior?
1: Yeah. I th- I, there are many cases of kids who become violent toward yep. themselves or their parents. Yep. Um, so parents, that's why Uh, I was saying, I think earlier, it's really important that parents have a plan. Uh, If they're going to take devices away, they need to have a plan in place and really be observing their kids, see if their kids are becoming uh, violent outwardly. Are they self-harming? What are they doing? And this would be an argument in favor of ratcheting it down more slowly rather than doing it all at once. Mm-hmm. Unless they're sending them to a program. If they're sending them to a program, then, you know, they it's going to be taken away all at once, in all probability, depending on the where they go. Um, but, yeah, it is a dangerous period. I, I know of uh, my cousin lives in Peru, and, and her neighbor took the smartphone away from the daughter, and the daughter drank poison and ended up at the hospital. She lived, but you know, there was a lot of damage done uh, because of that. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it'd be better. uh, Ideally, it would be better for a family to do some family therapy, uh, you know, discuss it and um, be prepared for it rather than just doing it off the cuff and then not being prepared to deal with the reactions. Now, if if the reaction is not one of violence towards self or others, the reaction will be boredom, whining, complaining, uh, going to bed, refusing to get up, refusing to go to school. Uh, You know, those will be very typical symptoms. And parents should, again, just be prepared for that and be prepared to just live through it until the withdrawal is complete. And it might take a month. It might take just a few days. So it's it's impossible to know, but they'll come out on the other side of it um, if parents don't give in to the pressure that their kids are going to exert on them. Yes, which I'm sure is quite intense. <laughs>
0: Having friends and yes. children and witnessing this, I'm sure it is quite <laughs> intense. Curious if there is a correlation. So, for people like myself who might struggle with depression, anxiety, whether you're a parent or the one who's struggling, I'm wondering if any comorbidities like depression or anxiety might make their child or themselves more susceptible to this type of addiction.
1: Absolutely. There are definitely, we know that there are vulnerabilities. Youth, being young, the younger you are, the more susceptible and vulnerable you are. Depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, autism spectrum disorder, um, ADHD, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. All of these, anything that is uh, painful, stressful in a person's life, they they want relief from it. They want to be able to escape it if they don't have good coping strategies. If they don't have healthy coping strategies, they're going to turn to something else to find some relief from all of that pain and stress. And, um, and it might even be physical pain. So that's when... Th- that's going to be somebody who's very vulnerable and if you have those those conditions mental or physical then you know you might find yourself sucked into this alternative space on the other hand there's clear it, it, the research is very clear that you can that it's a bidirectional influence so you can be a kid or a teenager playing video games or a young adult and get so drawn in that you isolate, you don't sleep enough, you don't eat well, you don't exercise. You're, and guess what? You become depressed. Yes. You may not have started off depressed, but you become depressed. So it's hard to know which started. I mean, sometimes we know, but sometimes we don't. And um, and and that's what the enormous value I've seen in, uh, you know, our clients come in and it's after the withdrawal is complete that we actually have a much better sense of what's actually going on. 90% of our clients, 95% of them are no longer depressed. They're all depressed when they come in. And they're no longer depressed after a month of healthy living and being away from screens. So you really have to just, you know... Many there will be many physicians uh, watching this, probably, mm-hmm. and it's very important for them to be thinking about uh, not being too quick to diagnose, let's say, ADHD. Because, it, you know, a kid who, or a teenager or an adult who's sleep deprived, not getting exercise, completely addicted to screens, is going to look like they have ADHD, True. but they may not. True. Um, you know, and once they catch up on sleep and get some exercise and start being social out in the world, yep. guess what? They may no longer look like they have ADHD. So you just have to be approach the diagnoses with a, a, all of this in mind.
0: Yeah. Well, that success rate in in the program is quite hopeful. I know that different disorders um, they don't have is high of a success rate with treatment. So I think that is uh, a very hopeful message that for any type of internet addiction, they are seeing higher success rates once they are completing different Mm -hmm. programs. And I'm wondering for our viewers, what may be a typical, without giving any proprietary info out, but what might be a typical cadence of a program at restart? Um, is it a lot of is it group therapy? Is it maybe family? Is it getting back to nature? Um, just sort of wondering what people might expect if if they're watching this and saying, you know what? This might be something I need and could really benefit my life. But I'm I'm curious as to kind of you know what goes
1: down, what do we do there? <laughs> in in both the adolescent and the adult programs, they are when they come they're they are living in the country and it's rural it's very beautiful and it's a small community of people in in a living together so it's not in any way institutional that's much more sort of family style because we want them to feel comfortable and they are all socially anxious pretty much when they arrive so the the intimacy of that small group works really well and um, they have a combination of well for the adults they have a combination of some days spent at the ranch initially and then they uh, transition to a different locale that's also rural yep. um, and then they are coming they're taking care of animals at the ranch. They We have ponies and um, <laughs> um, goats and cats and chickens and a dog. That's awesome. And um, and they enjoy that, you know, and they're learning responsibility and empathy, looking how to take care of the needs of these other animals, and as well as their own needs. So they do that. Uh, but they are also coming into our center, which is in an urban location in Bellevue. And there they're doing group therapy, individual therapy, but they're also having a good time with the clients who are in the transition program who are also showing up at the center. And those clients who are in the transition program um, are living in apartments near the center. They're getting work part-time. They're maybe going back to college you know, they're starting to live much more normal, young adult, independent lives, but they intermingle there at the center. And, um, you know, we have an art room and we have a room with ping pong and other kinds of games. And they're just, you know, having a pleasant time, uh, kind of rediscovering. We want them to rediscover that life can actually be pretty satisfying Without screens, and then they one when they're in the transition program is when they can start using computers. But at our lab, in our facility, at our center, and there and those computers are monitored, so we're making sure they're sticking to their agreed agreements. In the adolescent program, it's similar, that, but in the adolescent program, they're going to school as well, okay. so we're licensed as a school and. Right. But the, but the schoolwork is done with pencil and paper and books and, you know, not online. Yep. But they can reach a point after they have a good plan in place and they're really fully engaged in the program in a really healthy, good way. They can start using computers for schoolwork. Yep. And so that kind of gives you a real quick overview of of. What it's like, but we're also working with the families, especially with the teenagers. They're going home. the The adults might not be going home for more than just a brief jumping-off period, but the adolescents are going home to live, and so we really have to work hard with all the parents for the adults and the teenagers, so that the parents understand the changes they need to make to support recovery, and. Um, So that's more or less how we do it.
0: And I love to hear that because I think a lot of times parents or anyone who has a loved one suffering any type of addiction, the attitude is, we love you, we're scared, but you need to go get well in a vacuum. We're Mm -hmm. not going to participate. This is your problem, not our problem. Mm -hmm. So we're going to send you off. We're going to give you all the tools. And then when you come home, you might be set up to fail if the family really doesn't have that type of support. So it encourages me that you do have a focus on families being involved because I've seen so many times people do the work and they do, you know, children especially and they do the hard work and they go back home and they kind of face, um, you know, uh, an obstacle in the sense where they have all this awesome education. And, And sometimes the parents just don't. Yeah. So I think it's, um, it's a special addition to include the family in there as support just beyond get back and come well, you know, get back well with us. And when we see you, hopefully, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll be cured, but we won't really adjust anything on our end.
1: I, we really do believe that addiction is a family issue yeah. and, uh, you have to work on the whole family, mm-hmm. uh, if there's going to be success.
0: Well, that makes total sense. And in a lot of them, um, I know in my case, my family was my largest support system. So um, I think it's great that you're encouraging them to get involved. And, and that's mm-hmm. definitely a very promising um, part of the program, I mm-hmm. have to believe. Another question, and it's really, really, it's difficult to strike a balance. We know this. There are different things that we can employ which is, you know, really staying focused, maybe not checking our phones every single second. Um, these are all really great sort of practical ways, everyday ways that people can, can go about and start to do this. I'm wondering for people whose professions, a um, like I said, I was online, Lord knows how many days working in digital media on different platforms. Are, is there any advice you can give to those, those of us who, that's our job. We, we kind of have to be online, whether you're a developer at any one of the platforms or you're just a worker there. And it's something, it's your livelihood. You can't necessarily get away from the amount of hours. Is there anything that you might be able to suggest to them that might help mitigate that without them being anxious about their performance at work suffering?
1: Well, uh, move to France.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, def- that is definitely for sure. <laughs> the, the French have actually passed a law. My understanding, a law that says employers may not uh, email and demand work from their employees. One, you know, after the when the workday is done, it's like, yay! This is the way it should be. So, so I think. You know, I think it's tough, but I think finding employers who will honor boundaries, you know, and and and, you know, you have to be willing to say I need I need a good work life balance. I don't want to work after I go home. I have a family. I have myself. And uh, and if you can't let me honor that, um, I'm going to go look for work elsewhere. I, I, you know, some companies understand this better than other companies. So I think you have to look for the company that will help you and allow you to do that.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's probably for those uh viewers in our audience out there, that's probably a great thing to ask, especially when they're going through the interview process with new companies. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it would be a great thing for them to address in those initial interviews to mm-hmm. sort of, sort of mm-hmm. get an idea of what the expectations or the culture
1: absolutely,
0: of the company is like. And your France example brings me <laughs> to a question I'm almost a little afraid to ask, but at the same time, I think it might be beneficial. Do you see in the future any sort of regulations being put once, once this continues to really hit, and I don't know if we even hit the apex of it yet, but when we are seeing so many people just struggling and getting um, wrecked almost by this addiction, are there any regulations? You could see that maybe our country, who suffers the most with internet addiction, um, might do something akin to France. Um, outside of the workplace?
1: Well, I don't know if we'll ever manage to do it. I certainly hope so. And uh, there are efforts afoot to pass some legislation that would increase protections for children. Um, And I hope that those pass. I I do, you know, we're a society that I think is... um, where politics is so heavily influenced by lobbyists, I yep. think it becomes very difficult sure. to get legislation passed that goes against the interests of the companies that are so very powerful. You know, companies like uh, Meta and all all the others are, I mean, they're enormously powerful yes. with endless amounts of money. Yes. And so I think it's very hard to work uh, well within that context. Uh, um, But I I would love to tell your audience uh, that my understanding is that Korea really took this seriously early on. And um, we've been over the years either visited by delegations from Korea, Mm -hmm. South Korea, or we have had opportunity to talk to them um, at conferences. And and the picture I have gotten Mm -hmm. is that as of about 15 years ago, um, maybe even more than that, South Korea under pressure from parents is my understanding um, decided to first of all, agree that it was a legitimate real problem. And that they were going to do something serious about it. And so what they did is declared it a a disorder, internet addiction disorder, I think is what they're calling it. They um, have a huge public education campaign that has been going on. They have developed and utilized curriculum starting in kindergarten for the kids in public school. They screen kids in public school for internet addiction. And if they meet criteria, they're sent to, uh, I think, a two or three week detox kind of camp that is, from my understanding, you know, fine. It's, it's, you know, kind of like probably what we do at Restart rather than the Chinese model, which is very boot camp. Yeah, it's not a boot camp. It's, you know, it's it's probably quite compatible with our sensibilities. And then that's followed by individual and family therapy. And they have trained specialists, they have quite a few um, specialized treatment programs that are supported by the government. I mean, it's really comprehensive, in other words, and that's the way to go. So I really hope we get there. I just don't know if we will.
0: Yeah, it seems like the onus, you know, now is uh, parents, certainly with nice. children, to take take control of that and and sort of put their own regulations on yeah. there on a, a micro level. And I think yeah. that's a very hopeful message, too, that, you know, the more you become involved, um, mm-hmm. the better. I have uh, one of my best friends has an eight-year-old, and I thought it was very interesting. He's got this little watch. And it's controlled, in this case, it's called Gizmodo. It's controlled by Verizon, which is the wireless service my friend has. So I was over there the other week and I had her take me through the interface just because I was fascinated to see what can parents, I don't have children, so what what can parents control? What can't they control? But the thing that I found beneficial or maybe fascinating about this is not only is she able to put all sorts of regulation in blocks, it's Mm -hmm. not connected to the internet. It's really essentially used almost like a phone. And parents have the ability with these to sort of introduce their children to tech without any of the areas that might really capture them, Mm -hmm. and bring them in. And I'm wondering if you are seeing any, with your patients or stories of any telecom companies that are creating what I would call almost child or adolescent friendly devices with different guardrails instead of just chucking them you know, an iPhone and say, Here
1: you, go. you know, I'm not really up to date on all that is out there, mm-hmm. but I do know that we have at, at restart, our clients who are transitioning into the transition program called open world from the intensive program. Yeah. Um, they're not allowed to have their smartphones back. Um, yeah. and they use what's called a gab phone JBB mm-hmm. and that gab phone has no internet access. Um, and it, Works beautifully. The no. trouble begins for some of them once they get their smartphones back. Right, right.
0: I I can only imagine this. This seemed interesting to me because a lot of us do not have landline phones. Uh, I don't anymore. And a lot of the concern with my friend was, you know, we we need an outbound dialing, you know, device mm-hmm. that he can have. God forbid, in an emergency and. It only allows calls to people that she can put in mm-hmm. his contact list. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was actually impressed, which isn't yeah. too often. Yeah. With, <laughs> <laughs> really not with the different guardrails that you can you can put on. But mm-hmm. I know yeah. a lot of parents are concerned about. Well, there's a balance. I don't want my child to not know anything about how to use the internet and fear that it might set them back, but I don't really know, you know, you shaking your head. So
1: I'm shaking my head because there's actually some really interesting research that shows that you could take a, you can take a, a teenager who's 17, 18 years old, yep. who's not had any internet in their lives and, and within a matter of a few months, they're absolutely as facile at using the technology as somebody who's grown up with it. I mean, it's really not that hard to learn how to use the technology. And, yes, kids can start coding at age four, wow. but, you know, there are games that are designed to help them code. But you can learn to code at age 17, 18, 19, 20 just fine. That's so true. I just don't buy the argument at all that somehow parents are putting placing their kids at a disadvantage if they delay their internet uh, access. Um, I think actually often, I mean, it's fine. I, I'm not saying they shouldn't have internet access at some point, um, you know, uh, in later, maybe later elementary school. But I think what parents fail to understand is that, or what I want parents to understand is that the first six years of life are laying the foundation for everything that follows. And, and we are not designed to be in front of screens. They, as human beings, that is not what we're designed for. We are designed for our young children to be exploring the social world through face-to-face interaction, the physical world by exploring it, the natural world, the world of touch the world of connection, um, the world of creativity with an active imagination. There is all of this, the foundation for all of that, for language, for all of that is laid in those first six years and screens have a tendency to interfere with that healthy development. So the the less screens you give kids at those young ages, the better. And then I, I'm... I recommend parents not let kids have internet access for anything except required schoolwork because they don't need to be on social media at early ages. They don't need to be playing online video games. No, no, no. Um, You know, these are not platforms that are appropriate for young children. In my opinion, they require some maturity. So total
0: and complete sense. And lastly, I'm wondering, doc, what what would you give um, all your professional experience in, in being a co-founder of Restart and all the people you've talked to, what would be your advice to to the person who is really struggling right now um, with this? I'm wondering if, if there are any you know chestnuts or, or golden nuggets that you could give to someone who's watching this who is very concerned that that they might, be addicted
1: yeah go to 12 step meetings <laughs> Great. really Great. um don't try to solve it in isolation um yes. get support get 12 step meeting support there are online groups for internet and technology addicts for anonymous for gamers anonymous for sex and love addicts anonymous Great. um you know so 12 step groups are such a help and to go in person is great yep. if you can find a, a 12-step meeting of any sort where you are where you feel welcomed yep. if your addiction is based on the internet and and let's say it's gamblers anonymous or something never mind as long as they're welcoming you'll find what you need in a 12-step group probably yep. so that's you know and something that I think think is super helpful or some alternative you know there are some other similar kinds of groups that aren't explicitly 12-step that would be fine but don't do it in isolation get yourself a a therapist yep. who understands internet addiction to help walk you through it so if you possibly can you know the at the bare minimum find a 12 step meeting because you can find an AA meeting anywhere. You know, any country in the world is going to have probably 12 step meetings for at least AA. So I would, I I just think trying to solve it in isolation usually doesn't work. It really, really requires connection, community support. So that's my advice.
0: No, that's great. And it, uh, 12-step meeting, I would attribute to helping save my life and help me with my alcohol addiction. And the part that I found just personally to the audience as someone who's gone through a 12-step program is probably the most powerful, um, and, and I'm wondering your opinion on this as well, the most powerful thing for me was literally seeing people who were in recovery or had been required. We called them sponsors, which I would just call mentors, Really, and, and I found it so impactful when you're talking about the lived experience and, and you get to literally see people who were suffering, but who are thriving, yes. they're thriving, they're laughing, they're having a great time. Yes. And uh, it's usually just a buck or even free um, to attend versus mm-hmm. I know sometimes professional therapists, it might be cost prohibitive, mm-hmm. but I also did not know myself that there were different 12 step programs which which excites me um that are related to this because yes. to your point um i remember going into one of my first meetings and and i tried to get better in isolation like you said and and it just really wasn't working out and you know he looked at me and he said well look no one comes here on a winning
1: streak so, <laughs> that's then, great
0: it was that's great, great. And he just looked at me and he said, you know what? Sit here and listen. I just want you, Jackie, to absorb. I want you to absorb other people's stories. I want you to meet people that you can look up to and who can really give you that I know what you're going through personally, and, and I know I found that powerful, but just being able to to see and, and shake a hand with someone who says, I, I've been where you've been. I've been really low, and now I'm I'm on the road to recovery. I found that to be um, exceptionally powerful, and, and again, something that you can do in any city you live in. Um, not sure with internet addiction as much as maybe AA meetings, but I'm sure they will get to the point where they might be as common as something like right, that.
1: right now. They're real. They're quite uncommon. Yeah. Which is why I, I want to encourage people to go to any meeting. Yeah. Um, I happen, if you're in a city that has sex and love addicts anonymous, I yeah. find that a particularly good meeting because most of the people we work with are also struggling with intimacy. They don't know, how to initiate, build, and maintain healthy, intimate relationships. Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous is very much working on that problem. And many, in my experience in Seattle, Mm -hmm. many, many of the people who attend that are also have been gamers and, and have been, you know, internet addicts with pornography, but other things as well. And so I think you're likely to have a very good reception there. Gamblers Anonymous, you're likely to have a very understanding audience there. But uh, at least in our area, the AA meetings have been totally welcoming. And the great great advantage to going to AA meetings is exactly what you were talking about, finding so many people with years and years of recovery who, who've made it work, living wonderful, happy lives. And it's it's very encouraging for our clients who go to those meetings. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like a combination of family support, a willingness to work on the problem, and, and meeting other people who who are struggling on a lived experience level for you might be three good ways. Um, yeah think about getting better.
1: Yes, that's a good summary. Um, There's one point I'd like to make. Yep. And that is that, well, a couple of points I'd like to make. One is that uh, in terms of the neurobiology uh, of what's going on in the brain of yep. somebody who's internet addicted, it's pretty much similar to what's going on in the brain of somebody who's addicted to drugs and alcohol. Wow. You know, it's the same. It's the same neurobiological processes at work. Yep. Um, and, and it's just helpful for people to understand that this it has a biological basis. Even though you're not ingesting the chemicals, your brain is responding uh, as though you were. <laughs> and so um, that's yep. one point I'd like to make. And the other, uh, another point is that many people go online because they're lonely and they want social connection. And so they—they're. That's why they're in social media, or that's why they are, uh, you know, playing video games where there's a community aspect to the video games, and so forth. But the the research is again very clear. The more time, beyond a certain point, you know, a, an hour or two is not likely to cause any harm. And in fact, can be really good for people's self-esteem and and their mood and all of that. And so, no no harm done. It's all about moderation, right? But once you go start going beyond that, um, there really is uh, the the more time you're spending online, the less time you're spending out in the rest of the world and on your life, and the more depressed people become. So it's not a good substitute to to go online and try to meet your social needs online. It's like a little bit is fine, but you need to meet your social needs out in the real world.
0: Yeah, I think um, we've got a lot of powerful companies that uh, really leaves it up to us and our families to to really step in Mm -hmm. and, and help with that. After some part of recovery, do doctors start to see the different neurons and different things sort of come back or
1: increase or improve? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the withdrawal process is that process of the brain coming back to normal function. Mm. So, yeah.
0: I can't thank you enough, Dr. Bash, for coming on. Um, As I said, this has been personally so enlightening for me and I know our audience will absolutely eat this content up, because it is something that is emerging. And I think we have a lot to learn as it goes on. It's sort of Mm -hmm. constantly evolving. But your work at Restart, I think, has been unbelievably impressive. And I just wanted to take the time to thank you for all of your effort and all of your time um, that you put into this. I know you're helping millions of people.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for the work you're doing.
0: Well, thanks, Dr. Cash. Thank you all for joining today's conversation with Dr. Cash. While the overall understanding and treatment of technology addiction may still be in its earlier stages, this is an issue that is here to stay, and it increases each year. People are struggling with socialization on basic levels and are drawn further and further away from the human connection we all need, whether we like it or not. Reconnecting to people, places, and things outside of our devices is just now harder than ever. Being conscious of this disturbing trend is the first step in maintaining a healthier relationship with your technology. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you visit medcircle.com, you can access tons of other conversations, including weekly workshops with our credentialed doctors, an award-winning video library that features almost 1,000 educational videos on a variety of different topics. Become a member of our community today. Visit medcircle.com to learn more. Thank you for listening to It's All in Your
1: Head and we'll chat next week.